BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I'm here with Professor Andre Fenton, who is a professor of neuroscience at New York University and the director of the Neurobiology of Cognition Lab and co-investigator of the NYU Baby Sleep Study. So um, one thing that we're going to talk about is Professor Fenton's contribution to the literature on how the brain stores memory. Um, and now, you know, kind of what research is saying about that. So I'd love to hear from you how the brain stores memories and what happens to the brain during sleep. Okay, well, thanks for having me um, on and, and for the conversation. Um, you know, the, the truth is we don't actually know that much about how the brain does many of its, um, what you would consider to be normal activities, including storing memories. Um, but we know how to think about it, and we know quite a lot of uh, data. We, I like to describe it as, you know, we sort of know the tip of the iceberg, but there's, you know, a lot below the surface that we're trying to sift through. Um, so, you know, one of the, to me, wonderful things about thinking about memory or even understanding memory, it's something we often obsess about and we think we should try and maximize mm. and, uh, and seem to care about. But it's just something that brains do. They almost can't help it but to mm. store memories. Tied really very explicitly, not merely to the things that you normally um, think about memory in sort of the, the conventional sense, like the, a student would think about you know, trying to memorize the facts that they happen to be studying or the lines that they happen to be remembering, trying to remember if they're uh, trying to play a part, for example, in a play or a song or something like that. Simply, your brain, because it's set up to do this, stores the experiences that you have when those experiences are sufficiently salient mm -hmm. and important so that you can live longer and better and you know the simple way to describe it is adaptively it's just how you learn to be a person how you learn to get through the world and how you learn to make efficient and and uh, hopefully optimal decisions about learning to walk learning to see as well as collecting abstract information about the world like you know, who your friends are, who your friends might not be, what is a safe place, what is a exciting place, you know, how to do a motor skill like ski or, or kick a football or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so these are, that sounds like just the business of living every day, which mm -hmm. is what, what uh, memories actually are in the business of doing, helping you to live 
every day, more or less um, efficiently, according to some notion of what efficient is, which doesn't always have to correspond to what parents or individuals think is efficient. Right. Now, is there a difference in how an infant's brain stores information during sleep versus sort of an older brain or throughout life? Or do we have that? Do we know? Is it more important during this time or another? Well, what we know is when you use your neurons to do something, to perceive something or um, understand something or actually do something like move your arm, the activity in those neurons and in your brain, there are a lot of neurons. There's, you know, just short of a hundred billion neurons in a uh, adult brain. And those neurons are the things that become active, not all of them at the same time, but in different patterns, you know, a few million here, a few million there become active when you have any experience that we know of. Um, And different patterns correspond to different experiences. And what's important about neurons, and and in some sense unique about them, is that they connect to each other, and they connect to each other a lot. Um, Each neuron connects to about 10,000 other neurons. You know, sometimes it's Mm -hmm. 1,000, sometimes it's 50,000, but on average, say, 10,000. And those connections are through um, little junctions, little spaces in your, uh, between the neurons we call synapses. And the neurons pass uh, electrochemical signals, they're called neurotransmitters, across those little junctions. And they can be good at passing those signals or bad at passing those signals. So you can think of it as a broken telephone uh, type of game mm-hmm. where w- one sender has to talk to a receiver and that receiver then has to send it on to another, uh, becomes the sender and sends it on to another receiver, neuron to neuron to neuron. And the efficiency, the fidelity of that information transfer can vary. And because it can vary, it has this really interesting property of changing the information, just like in broken telephone. Mm-hmm. But for our purposes, for the brain's purpose, sometimes it's good to transform information. That's how we build knowledge. That's how when you look at something, you can derive more meaning from it than what it just would appear to be. And, and that's why one person can derive more meaning or different meaning than another person uh, because of, in some sense, this filtering from the broken telephone game. And so a baby has to do the same thing. It has neurons, just like fruit flies have neurons and worms have neurons and rats have neurons and people have neurons, monkeys. We all have these neurons, whether you're an insect or a mammal, and they work on the same principles as far as we can tell. So in a baby's brain, imagine that baby um, is in this amazing part of time of its life, really, when it can learn a lot. In fact, it's quite remarkable how much a baby has to learn. It has to learn to be a human. It Mm -hmm. has to learn to to perceive the world, to understand what to ignore in the world, to understand what's important in the world. It has to understand what to do with its body. Doesn't come, you know, pre preformed that it knows how to walk or reach or you know any of these things. These are things that the baby learns through experience, and 
the experience is just using its neurons the way the neurons have been genetically coded to to start out life with. And it uses these neurons. And the neurons that communicate very well when they pass those little chemical signals, those neurotransmitters, those effective communications also cause there to be, in some sense, neuron food um, exchanged. Mm. And so the neurons that, ex- that communicate very well also get neuron nutrition, if I can say it that way. Sure. And they get to survive those connections, those synapses of the 10,000s, the, the ones that work well, get to persist. And that persistence is what we call memory. Um, and the other ones that don't communicate very well, they weaken or sometimes even disappear. And that's fantastic because they weren't useful. They were producing noise, possibly. They were getting in the way. And so because this exchange through use is weak, they don't pass enough nutrients, so to speak, and those connections don't survive. They don't persist. And we also think of that as memory. So there's a strengthening and a weakening in this massive network of connections, the trillions of connections that we have in our brains between neurons. Um, and that refinement of those connections is what we think of as a brain learning. And when those connections refine and persist, we think of that as the substrate, if you will, of memory. And that's basically how it works as far as we know in you know, any neural system. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life, and I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment, to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. You can follow along with everything over on Instagram at Ariel Laurie, and make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. One thing I want to ask is, so do we think sleep, for example, is one of those nutrients that... Yeah, so let's, let's get to sleep. So if... if- experience is getting neurons to be active together. Mm -hmm. And when they're active together, they do this exchange very well. So sleep is an interesting state because sleep is a time when a bunch of things happen. One of the things that happens during sleep is your brain becomes very active, but not in the normal way it was active during wakefulness. Sleep is not a time when your brain goes quiet. Sleep is a time when your brain is, in fact, very active. Um, But it's active in unusual ways compared to wakefulness. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of things happen during sleep. The brain generates these patterns of activity that are very stereotyped um, in different stages of sleep. And these stages aren't quite as well developed in an infant brain as they are in the adult brain. But nonetheless, there are stages of sleep. And the thing that I think is remarkable, as everyone knows, when you're sleeping, you're less aware, if not unaware, of your surroundings. So you're not attentive to the sounds 
that are uh, occurring around you. You close your eyes and you usually sleep in darkness, so you're not aware of the visual world. You're not usually eating, so you don't taste very much. So your brain is now, in some sense, disconnected. Not fully, but for the most part, it's disconnected from sensation, from the world around you. And what's interesting about that is, nonetheless, your brain is very active. So during wakefulness, when your brain is active under the control of the external world, when you're sleeping, your brain is under the control of, in some sense, your internal world. Mm -hmm. It operates the way we describe it um, under its own dynamics, under its own tendencies. And those tendencies tend to be the patterns that are the neurons are strongly connected to realize. For example, a recent experience that strengthened those synapses and made those synapses strong can easily replay during certain stages of sleep under their own, if you will, spontaneous will. The replaying of them during sleep is not materially very different from the actual experience that you had during wakefulness. So So you can think of this as replaying the tape of your recent day. The tape replays a little faster than, uh, or a lot faster, several times uh, faster than real time, Um, but that's fine. That's even better for neurons because when they replay faster, then they can make better exchange, if you will, of those neurotransmitters and strengthen their connections even more. Wow. So sleep is one of these times when you get to rehearse, if you will, internally, not to actively be conscious of that rehearsal, but you get to replay and your brain is in some sense rehearsing the important things that happened during the day. Whether you think of them as important or not is not itself relevant, mm-hmm. but your brain thinks your, of them. Your as brain's going to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It it was decided by how the neurons fired, wow. and so your brain is, in some sense, inscribing this, making it more likely that these patterns will happen again during wakefulness, and. That's how when you wake up, you now have, in some sense, a different brain, not a randomly different brain, but a brain that has been strengthened in terms of its likelihood to reproduce what it had recently experienced. So if you think about that, that's pretty cool, but there's one other layer. Let me add to that. Great. That was just today. You know, yesterday, the same thing happened. And, because, and the day before that, the same thing happened. So you're not building every day, you know, independently of the, of the previous day. You're building on your previous experience, which is built on your prior experience, which is built on your yet prior experience. So you can see how hopefully you can, in a directed way, not a random way, build up certain concepts, build up certain skills like moving your arm or raising your head um, and so forth 
when the muscles develop to be able to do this and the brain connections develop to, to actually be able to control those muscles, then these kinds of patterns of activity refine so that like practicing a golf swing, your brain is practicing how to move your fingers independently and how to reach for something accurately and how to control your anti-gravity muscles so that you can actually stand up. Um, it's obviously not trivial because babies take some time to do it and you can see them. <laughs> you see their brain working at doing that and over time they get better at it and they learn mm. to do this. Not unlike how we learn you know, a language or a song. Right, or that's exactly what somebody. I was just thinking. Right, I was just thinking about even you know, when you're talking to a baby before they are verbal, how their brains are kind of practicing. It's so wild to think about how these brains mm -hmm. are. Is it true that there are 1 million new neural connections, I mean, give or take, um, per second in, in infancy? Or is that, um, is that a rumor? <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what the actual number is, but it's a it's going to be a huge number. It's in, in fact, in your adult brain, there are not a unsubstantial number of changes that are happening all the time. Too, in infancy, the connections are far, far more. It, mm. You know, your babies are are really learning machines. Um, and, in some sense, if you could harness the, in fact, many people think about this, um, you injure your brain or you, you've decided that there's some dysfunction in an adult brain through injury or, or some disease state. And very often um, we can imagine how it's possible to fix that, if you will, um, at least in principle. But mm -hmm. what you usually need is that the brain gets reverted to a stage where it's very capable of learning. It's very plastic, we say. Mm. And those kinds of plastic states are the states that you observe in young life, in infancy and into childhood, depending on the part of the brain. Um, we call these times you know, critical windows, if you will, when right. the brain is, or brain region, is really poised to change cherish not only your own brain but your child's brain because um, their early life and in fact their life in general is preparing them for their future so be mindful of what you allow and and uh, encourage your child to experience almost all experiences are valuable but some are more valuable than others it's going to be very interesting to see you know what this particular experience all children are having right now of kind of staying, and I know you're in, we're both in New York, uh, staying home with your parents um, yes. <laughs> for a very extended amount of time is going to do. I was thinking there are a lot of babies out there that are going to get a lot of interactions they maybe weren't going to have, but there are also probably a lot of adolescents that are going to get a lot of interactions that they were not excited to have. <laughs> and um, I wonder... Exactly. I wonder where that's going to go, but it's just an an interesting, um, you know, if you can take away the the fear and unknown and health and economic trauma that's going on and just look at it as this time that has never existed. 
it's well, it's pretty wild. I, I see it as an amazing opportunity, right? So yeah. normally, normally we live in ways that are pretty well prescribed, and you you sort of know the rules and you should follow them because there are consequences otherwise, and so on. Mm-hmm. Now the rules are are pretty open. Um, one and you can decide to cower away and you know hide and, and wish for the old times if you want, mm-hmm. or you can look for the opportunities now. And we're going to teach our children by how we respond, which way they should you know they should be in the world. Should you be someone who runs away from from uh, scary uh, uncertainty, or should you be the kind of person who's looking for? the opportunities in the uncertainty and they're both kinds of people and we need them all, but you Uh, get to help your kid (laughs) choose between those extremes. And now for listener questions and answers. The first question is, I'm a mom of two, a five-year-old and a three, almost four-year-old, both girls. My five-year-old is very spirited. She really struggles with discipline. When she's disciplined for behavior, for example, hitting her younger sister She'll come back and ask why I'm so cranky and that I'm making the day so hard for her. She gets very emotional and has big, big emotions about things she doesn't want to do. How would you respond in a situation like this? Well, thank you for your question. And I know it can be really hard, especially when an older sibling hits a younger sibling or feels like they're spirited and you need to stand your ground so that they, you know, can be controlled. But sometimes, When you have a spirited child, the very fact that you are engaging in the intense argument can set them off so that it becomes a battle. So when something upsets you that your child does, try to stay calm and notice and connect with her about how she might be feeling. So in this case, if she comes to you after she's been disciplined and I'm, you know, we can't really address that because I can't talk to you, but... I am curious what that means that she's been disciplined for hitting her sibling because it's possible if she felt sort of alienated or shamed during that period, even though certainly you can't not address it. Um, so she's, she does need to have boundaries. She can't hit her sister. But if it was done in a way that is shaming or angry, it may be that she's not able to learn anything and to come back to you feeling like you still love her and everything's going to be okay and that she's still a good kid. So if she comes over and she says something like that to you about how you're kind of ruining the rest of the day, take that moment to reflect back to her what you think she's trying to say to you. So maybe even mirror what she's saying. You feel like mommy's mad at you or cranky and it's ruining the rest of your day. That way you're not putting judgment in it. You're just letting her know, I see you and I understand how you're feeling. And then you can say, if I come across as cranky, it's probably because I'm still feeling a little bit thrown off by you hurting your sister and I need to calm down for a bit and then we'll be able to move along with the day. So it's just a matter of making sure that you don't engage in the bigger, higher emotions, but rather see her, let her know you understand, and also keep that boundary. She's not allowed to hit. The next question says, hi, 
I have a one-year-old boy who throws his head and body back, screams and tries to get away from me every time we try to do something he doesn't like. For example, changing his nappy, getting him dressed, getting him out of the bath, etc. Or if I take something away from him that he's not allowed to play with, for example, the TV remote. He's very strong and it often takes two of us to get him dressed for the night after his bath. Is there something that we can do to address this behavior now without being able to speak with him? Thank you so much for your podcast. Listening makes me feel so much more positive and capable of being and becoming the parent I want to be. Listening from Australia. Thank you so much for your kind words. Okay, so you have a one-year-old and what's happening is if your one-year-old's throwing his head back or doesn't want to do the things that you're mentioning, which are all so typical, what's happening is you have an emerging toddler. He's coming out of his infancy and he wants to do things and he doesn't want to have everything done for him, but he's still a baby. And so he can't do those things for himself. What you can do is try to engage him to participate. Even if he's still a baby, he can hold on to something like wipes or he can hold on to the diaper cream so that you can talk him through it and help him participate and feel empowered. Same thing with getting his clothes on. You can say, okay, put your arm out and then he'll copy you putting his arm out. And if he can't do that, you can show him what you mean by that. Okay, let's put your leg in lift your leg up. So you really participate in it. And you could say, okay, you hold the shirt while I get on your pants. So you really make your little baby feel like he's growing into a competent little toddler. Sometimes that really helps because it's hard. And also for diaper changing, as your babies get a little bit older, once they can stand it's really much easier to change their diaper standing up, which sounds kind of difficult. But if you wrap your arms around their waist and you have everything with you and you enlist them to help hold some of the items you might need, if you can quickly take the diaper off with your other hand and scoop up the poop or pee, sorry to be so graphic on the podcast, and wipe them, then what you're doing is it's not quite as babying or infantilizing as lifting their legs up like chickens when they're babies on the diaper changing table. And sometimes it's just a little less unpleasant. You can do this in the bathroom if you are in a location with a bathroom so that you can go ahead and put the poop into the toilet and flush it and wipe them and so forth. It really helps, you know, get them to participate and you describe what you're doing and they'll be paying attention to you and participating more instead of focusing on trying to get away from you. When you're taking something away, try not to just take it away. Rather say, I can't let you play with the remote control, but I can give you this instead and give another object instead or a choice. I need to take the remote control. Do you want to hand it to me or do I need to take it from you? Because even though it feels like your one-year-old doesn't understand, the more you talk to your one-year-old with the sort of language, enthusiasm, energy, and attention that will help him understand what you're trying to communicate and the gestures as well. With repeated experiences, he's really going to get those words and start to understand. And remember, they have receptive language, meaning language they can understand long before they have expressive language that they can speak and say things that they want to say. Hang in there 
And thank you for listening. Don't forget to send questions to my direct message on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show today, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and maybe even write a little review. I hope everyone is doing okay and staying safe and healthy and cozy during this really difficult time. And I will be back next week. Thank you.